Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. This is a prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at County Detention Center. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. Guess what time it is? It's time for crime! In this episode, we will discuss Ms. Eva Dugan's case. We hope to answer the following questions. Do you have a nickname? Are you a good housekeeper? And have you ever tried milking a cow? So listen in and find out more. But for now, try not to end up on an episode unless you're a guest. Hey guys, welcome back. This is your host, Vanny. And this is Kat. So, Miss Kat, how was your week? How's things going? Oh, going well, going well. You know, things at work just uh, moving is, along. The, is moving along because as the year is, is, you know, we're starting to look to be able to see the end of the year. So, everybody's trying to cram everything and get everything done. You know how that is. Healthcare. I've had all year to do it. Oh, wait. I was two months left of the year. Let's let's jump on it. Yeah, that's usually the case. And then the beginning of the year, now it's like everybody's like, oh, I have to wait till the end of the year because of benefits. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. How it is, right? Yep. Yep. But, New year, the first few months will probably be crickets, but right now it's crazy. And in my world, it's complete opposite. It's like the busiest time of the year is the beginning, like the first three months. Wow. In pharmaceuticals, because people are like, I got to start treatment again, and I have to meet my deductible, and my out of pocket, and... Christmas depressed me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, I just spent all this money for Christmas. And yeah. Anyways. Well, nothing crazy on my end. Just training and moving it along, but I'm really excited about this case, and I know you're really excited about this case, so... Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. One of my one of my favorites. Yes. Uh, we must speak about this case, definitely. It definitely left a huge imprint into the state of Arizona, right? Oh, it did. It did. You know, I'm passionate about the 30s, so I've, I've had my, this will be now our, our second case in the 30s. Yeah. But un- unlike the, our, our last case, uh, this one had significant impact on the state of Arizona. It really changed the way execution is looked at in the state of Arizona. Exactly. Well, before we start getting into the case, let's uh, remind everyone last week's question of the week, which was, what gift did John Wayne Gacy give FBI profiler Robert Ressler? Okay, so after his capture and imprisonment, Gacy delved into art to pass the time. His works became a hot commodity on the murderabilia market. His arts were oil and acrylic paintings. His subjects ranged from Jesus to the Seven Dwarfs. Serial killer, most associated with clowns because of his persona, Pogo, he gifted Ressler a brightly colored painting of himself as a clown. The inscription on the back read, Dear Rob Ressler, you cannot hope to enjoy the harvest without first laboring in the fields. Best wishes and good luck. Sincerely, John Wayne Gacy, June 1988. When Ressler asked Gacy what he meant by those cryptic words, Gacy simply said, 
Well, Mr. Resler, you're the criminal profiler. You're the FBI. You figure it out. <laughs> what a sneaky guy, right? Like, always have to leave a little clue towards the end. And he kind of liked having the last word, but I always got the feeling, though, when he had that, that he was almost more talking about himself. Does he, do you think this kind of almost leaves you thinking perhaps that if he continues looking into his case, that maybe he would find additional bodies or something that he was associated with? You know, I don't know. He was so good at putting them all in one spot in the crawl space of his house. But again, you know, if he was starting off, there could be somebody out there that, you know, he he didn't, he was like his first time in that he really didn't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. You know, until he got the idea, maybe it's easier to just lure them to the house. Right. And then it's kind of one and done. And it's not like I have to go out and do it and then dispose. So I don't know. It's crazy. But it is a, it's a great little cryptic word for for an FBI agent, right? To leave him hanging. <laughs> yeah. And and for as far as Mr. Resler, I, I was like, I would love to ask him like how he felt about that. Because on one hand, you're like, oh, my God, you know, Gacy's famous profiler. You know, I pro I help profile and catch him. And he he did this for me. And on the other hand, oh, ew, I'm not touching this. Get it out of my house. I know. It's like, where, I wonder where he has this painting at now. And how much is it worth for people that are in that like into serial killers, like really into true crime. You know, it, it always creeped me out because of all the things that you could paint. Mm-hmm. He is most known for the seven dwarfs. He loved painting the seven dwarfs. And it like creeps me out. Like, why are you doing like kitty seven dwarfs Disney? I mean, go, go paint anything. Paint all the Jesuses you want. It's probably good for you. Why are you painting the seven dwarfs? We'll have to see if we can find a picture of this painting so that we could post it on our... Yeah, they he was selling them, let me tell you. Yeah, we should definitely look and see if we can find something so we can post it on our question of the week so people can see. Hopefully we can find this painting in specific that he gave to him. Oh, yeah, this, that specific one would be... would be great. That'd be awesome. But yeah, he did a lot of work with the seven dwarfs. He's crazy. Clearly. (laughs) Well, to not leave our listeners hanging, we're going to give a little recap of the case and then you, a quick description of the case, and then we'll talk about the case. Uh, In in the execution chamber of the Arizona State Prison at Florence, Arizona, hangs a row of 17 pictures of 17 different murderers who were executed there. Around each picture is looped a noose in in which the criminal died. The 17th picture... And the 17th rope memorialized the picture of the first and only woman ever executed in Arizona. And this case is, of course, of Miss Eva Dugan. Yeah, isn't that kind of creepy that, I mean, now you finish with Gacy and the Seven Dwarfs, but now we've got, let's keep a picture of everybody we hung and then we'll put the noose around the picture. Seems odd to me. Let's get into this case and let's talk a little bit about her background. We'll go into the murder and then a little about the investigation and how they caught her. Okay. What I found was that she was born in 1878, no specific date of when she was born, just the thought of knowing 1878 just sounds so long time ago, <laughs> which is weird. I know. And uh, so she was the daughter of William M. McDaniel. They were born, she was born in Salisbury, Missouri in 1878. She ended up getting married at the age of 16 and had two kids. It's crazy to think of now, but it's a common practice back then. Yeah, I think it was very common for uh, younger women to marry older men. Mm-hmm. You know, if if we look back and remember uh, Winnie Ruth Judd, she did the same thing. Yeah. She she married a guy twice her age. 
So it is highly probable that he was older than she was. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the little messed up thing about it is that her husband abandoned the family and left them to the destitute. So that's a little harsh. It makes me think like, why did he leave her? What happened to, to that situation that left her, you know, with his two kids? She had a son and a daughter. Yeah. And she had to take care of him and do something. So I'm not sure what pointed her in this particular direction, but she decided to relocate in Juneau, Alaska. And that's not an easy place for a, a, a young woman with, with two kids. And she did it gold rush trekking. You know, this is before planes and modern automobiles. She is literally hiking, hiking. across yeah. Alaska during the gold rush. Yeah. And that gold rush was from the years of 1896 to 1899. So that. It's crazy to me to think of being able to withhold the, the weather, the terrain, the climbing that, that she probably went through and put her kids through. Oh, yeah. And then not to mention the people. I mean, you had oil drillers. You had people running from the law. You had people, you know, gold crazy. All, the, you know, people mining. All these people, you know, meshing together, mm -hmm. you know, probably drunken brawls and who knows what all. Yeah, I was gonna say, and then for her to just put, I mean, her, her young kids through that, and she also probably witnessed a lot of things of how people acted towards her being a single mom, right? Could take advantage of her, take advantage of her kids, anything could happen. Exactly. It was a rough time. Mm -hmm. It was a rough time. So in order to support her children and support herself and come up, you know, with a plan and have a roof over her head, she became a cabaret singer and a prostitute. Scary to think that that's the profession she had to go into because what else was she going to turn to? Exactly. She didn't finish school. She didn't get to, she got married at 16. She had to think about her kids. Like she's got to put food on the table. So she did what she felt was, at least I can make a little extra buck here. Yeah. Cause I'm sure at 16, she didn't, you know, finish school. She didn't have an education. She probably really didn't have much in the way of skill. So here she is entertaining all these crazy men that are up here looking for gold and oil and whatever they were doing. I think the most interesting is uh, her nickname that she gave herself. I I'm going to let you say the nickname because I think it's, a it's the greatest nickname ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here she is in Juneau, Alaska, and she became known as Claw-Fingered Kitty. Where did she come up with this? Like Claw-Fingered Kitty. I know. My only my only guess is that she was like one of those women that was like, I'll scratch your back. Like men were into scratching. I don't know. And she was down for it. Yeah, I don't know. It was, that's just such, a, just such an odd name. And I'm trying to picture some guy like half drunk or really tired or whatever. He stumbles in the brothel and they're like, hey, can I help you? Oh, I'm here to see Claw-Fingered Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's so crazy. But the... Even crazier part is that she married four other husbands who mysteriously, and I air quote, disappeared. So like she was doing this profession and got married four times. Yeah, seems kind of odd. Were their husbands okay with that? Or were they like pimping her out? Like, you know, I don't know. I have so many questions I don't have no answers to. I know. So it's like, did she do something to them? Did they fall down a mine shaft? I mean, you know, get eaten by a bear. I mean, the, the whole... Alaska thing, I mean, there's just as much chance that something could have bizarre could have happened to him as she could have done something to him. But the whole thing is weird. I mean, she's what, four or five for five? Mm -hmm. We're going on the first one just left, you know, and she was 16. But wow. 
I, who knows what happened to them? Yeah. And I mean, I get it. Their profession was probably, they were probably minors, right? They were going, were involved with the gold rush. So maybe they were minors and they got lost in the mine shaft or something happened to them. But for all we know, and all I could find was that they just disappeared. Yeah. Like all of them. Poof. Vanish. Suspicious is all I got to say. Very suspicious. <laughs> but she spent a long time in Alaska. I mean, she was 16, 17 when she went up to Alaska. And she stayed up there uh, until old age took her beauty and she relocated to Pima, Arizona. She was in her early 50s. So she spent 40 some years up in Alaska. Crazy life. That's tough. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she didn't age too well doing that lifestyle. Yeah. No, and I, I really didn't find any pictures of her young, but her there's a lot of pictures of her like at her arrest, you know, mm -hmm. and, and subsequent. She wasn't handsome. <laughs> she wasn't handsome. <laughs> but she led a very, very hard life too. Yeah, she did. I mean, electricity was at a minimum. You know, they were probably heating things with fire in furnaces and different things. And it, you know, they had to carry things. They probably didn't even have indoor plumbing in Alaska. So it was a rough life. It definitely was. It had to have been. So here she shows up in Pima County, Arizona. This is kind of where Arizona's inv involved. And she ends up working with the elder chicken rancher as and she becomes the housekeeper for Mr. Andrew J. Mathis. And get this, like the chicken rancher is kind of funny to think about. I've never really heard of people called chicken ranchers besides like usually usually when you're a rancher, it's like because you have cattle or you have horses, but chicken is weird to think about sometimes. You know, there's eggs to be had and then, you know, chicken to eat. So somebody's got to raise chickens at some point. But you're right. Arizona is not really known for its chickens, but apparently he was quite wealthy doing it. Yeah, probably was the only one in Arizona. <laughs> and... Well, I guess the Hickmans is here in Arizona, right? So yes, yes, they're north. So this was like two the, around Tucson area, and Hickmans, Hickmans is is, is yeah Buckeye West Phoenix. I didn't think about it till right now. I'm like, oh wait, the Hickmans are here in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, so there are people that chicken ranch. Yeah, but guess yeah, so. but she uh, hooked up with this guy in early 1927. I wonder how she met him and what led her to come to Arizona from Alaska. I'm assuming it has to be the weather and her age, right? After a while, like the the cold weather doesn't do you very well health-wise. Yeah. And she had a father living in um, LA. So I'm kind of surprised she just didn't go there. Right. She probably wanted to be close, but not close enough. <laughs> could be, could be, but yeah. So she gets herself this little job on this chicken ranch and uh, very quickly, their relationship became cantankerous. Mm -hmm. They often bickered. Uh, he hated her cooking. He accused her of poisoning him. He made it obvious that he was not happy with her work. He didn't think she could clean. There was nothing that she did that he liked. And he was demanding and abusive and just difficult to get along with. He was just a crotchety old coot. And I'm sure it didn't help either that she was like a tough woman. I mean... You don't work as a cabaret singer and a prostitute and put up with men's crap. You're going to be a type of woman that's going to speak her two cents and say how she really feels and defend herself, right? So Yeah, I'm sure she gave it right back to him. I'm sure every little thing he said, she just gave it right back to him. And I'm sure the two of them just went at it. And he didn't like that, right? If he was old school thinking, he probably was like, women don't talk like this to men. Exactly, exactly. And it was like this for two months. 
and the tensions just grew. And uh, an acquaintance of Mathis was present at the house when he heard uh, Mathis fire Eva and told her in no uncertain terms to leave the ranch and never return. So there was a witness that heard the firing part of it. So Mathis gave her her walking papers. And it's odd because then the next morning, Mathis kind of disappears. Nobody really saw him, but as did some of his possessions and his Dodge Coupe automobile and the cash box. Hmm. Dodge Coupe, huh? Makes me think back in that time, like the driving. It was what, 19, 1927? Mm-hmm. Or 1920-something? Yeah. Whenever she got hold of this automobile and she was driving it and people, the neighbors were saying, you know, she was trying to sell some of the stuff. Oh, yeah. She was trying to sell some of the livestock. The neighbors were like, wait a second, this guy, Mathis, doesn't do these things. He would never leave you to sell his stuff as the housekeeper, first of all. Yeah, she came up with some story that he left for California, left everything for her and, you know, wanted her to take care of his business. And the neighbors were like, no. And they knew that he was such a tight wad. Oh, he was a Scrooge. This guy (laughs) wouldn't spend a nickel. And so they they were not buying what she was doing. They were just like, there's no way. Yeah. And then a few days after Mathis disappears, all of a sudden, Avid vanishes. Her and the car are gone. And you have to think, like back in 1927, he was probably the only person. There may have been one or two others, but he was probably one of the only or one of the few people that actually had an automobile. So it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure everybody knew about it. So when that car disappeared, people were really going, what is going on? Yeah. And if you think about it back in that time frame, uh, cars were probably about a thousand, thousand, two hundred, maybe two thousand max for something that had a little more upgraded feature. So there was some value to own and owning a car back in that time. And like you said, limited people could own a car. Oh, yeah. So people had to notice it and they had to notice that it was gone, Mm -hmm. you know. But um, it turns out that her daughter uh, went uh, to White Plains, New York. So she had her dad in California. She never, ever, ever told authorities or anybody her daughter's name or her son's name. And I don't think anybody ever really found the son. But she took off in the car and apparently drove through kansas city and decided to sell the car and so she sold it for six hundred dollars and then bought a train ticket to get to white plains new york it had to have been cold because here we're talking about what is it in january ish of 1927 mm-hmm. that this happened so i'm wondering if she stole i mean when she took the car she didn't realize that she was going to be driving this in the snow and she didn't know how to drive it in snow. That's what made her want to sell it. And she's like, you know what? I'll just get on a train. It's easier for me to get to New York that way. Or was it like she was, I got to get rid of this evidence. I'm going to sell it, get whatever I can with it. 600 bucks is a lot of money in 1927. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she just, she took off and she got to White Plains, New York. So in the meantime, you know, in Arizona, the cops are looking around and they're like, eh, we can't find him. And they don't, they don't find a grave or anything with all they're looking, but they were able to, and I, I'm not sure how this quite connects, but there was the police were tipped off after a postal worker alerted police that they had intercepted a letter from her father in California. So they had 
it was, you know, she was at her daughter's. So it, she was staying with her daughter. So they were able to intercept the letter and find her. And so they went to New York and she was arrested for uh, the auto theft and she was extradited back to Arizona. So she was tried and convicted on the auto theft and she was sentenced to serve nine months in jail. So nine months for stealing a car, selling it. And this is when they're, everybody's kind of questioning her. Like, when's the last time did you see Mr. Mathis? Yeah. And she's she's not talking. So here she is. So now she's sitting in, the, in an Arizona jail doing her, her nine months. So about six months have gone by and there's still nothing showing up for Mr. Mathis. So the police, you know, again, go out. They don't find the body. They don't find a grave. Because let's face it, I, I don't even know how much acreage we're talking about. You know, I don't know how big his ranch was, you know, where the body was in relation to everything. So they were doing the best job that they could. But when they came back to the house, they noticed some things that just didn't add up. So they found some really troubling clues. So one of the first things that they found was an ear trumpet. So for our younger listeners, back in the day before we had hearing aids, when old people <laughs> were having trouble hearing, they literally had this little trumpet-shaped kind of horn. And it's probably about eight, nine inches long. It was kind of curved, a little bit like a saxophone. And they would stick it in their ear, and then it would amplify, and they could hear. And it was called an ear trumpet. And so they found it in, the, in a small stove in the front room. So they did some more digging around, and they found some carelessly discarded clothing Bits of automotive equipment, which I'm not really sure what that has to do with anything because he did have a car, but they found a blood, the blood stained cover for the roadster. Hmm. And that was what kind of gave them a little bit of hint that maybe he was still alive. You know, he was just hurt. Definitely the red flag for me is the trumpet in the stove. Because if you need an ear trumpet, that would be like your, you know, additional left hand or, you know, you would have it near you by you. So for it to just still be at the home was definitely a red flag and that it would be in the stove of all places. Yeah. Like we really went the extra mile there to, ooh, let's toss it in here. But you're right. I mean, if you're hard of hearing, you would want to keep that with you. You would need it for just in case somebody's calling out for you or somebody starts talking to you. And this guy was obviously, I mean, owning a ranch was some made some kind of business dealings that people came to his house very often. So... Yeah. Now they've got these clues and they find the bloodstained car cover mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out, you know, what they're going to do. So here comes Mr. Tourist. <laughs> and <laughs> I think, I think you found his name. I did. His name was J.F. Nash. He was a camper from Oklahoma. Yeah. So he comes noodling along. And he decides, okay, I'm going to set up my tent. So he gets his tent up and he's like, well, in case of rain, I guess we better stake it down. So he's tapping his little tent stakes and he's tapping. And all of a sudden he's like, man, this ground is really loose and clink. Ooh, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> he stumbles upon a grave, you know, with a decomposing body in it. So of course he reports it to the police. And so they get out there. This case I really thought was interesting being from the the, the late 20s and early 30s that they actually had some evidence. So we had, you know, the ear trumpet, we had the clothing, we had the bloodstained uh, car cover. So now they find the body and the clothing was tattered, but there was enough clothing that I they could identify him. And they had, there was a little bit of hair still on the skull. 
But what was interesting to me was that they decided he was murdered with an axe. Hmm. So nobody said anything, but I'm wondering if there was like a nice slice in the skull for them to, you know, make that determination. It was a true like uh, Sherlock Holmes kind of episode here. Yeah. So and then once the body was discovered, you know, Eva had some serious explaining to do. And of course, Eva being Eva, she was just scrappy and she preferred denial to any explanation. So when they confronted her about, hey, you know, here's the body and that instead of, you know, even I would never do that or you know, trying to come up with some crazy story. She just looks, she just sits there and leans back in her chair, just looks right at him. And she goes, if I was responsible for his murder, and if I buried him, she goes, I would bury him so deep, he would never be found. (laughs) And that's just how she treated everything. You know, she just was Miss Snappy answer. Definitely was a a case of Eva, you've got some explaining to do. (laughs) Exactly. So now she's in jail and they're questioning her and it's dun, dun, dun. Things are getting serious. So now she comes up with the Jack story. Oh, yes. Do tell of this Jack teenage boy that was that ranch helper. Yeah. So she claims that she met this young man. I think he was about 17 outside a restaurant. He was needing work. And all of a sudden he starts to work at the ranch. Now I have to scratch my head and go... You know, old man Mathis was such a tightwad. He was already paying for a housekeeper. Is he going to pay another ranch hand? I don't know. And one of the things going back to uh, her relationship with Mathis, they had two months of all this bickering and arguing and you can't clean house and you're trying to poison me and back and forth, back and forth. She admits that she slept with him and that she was running prostitution. So if he saw some men that, you know, he liked or he thought, you know, were good, he'd be, hey, boys, come over here. And she was getting $3 per sexual act, and she was giving him 50 cents. Yeah, he was definitely pimping her. So how much were they hating each other? Mm -hmm. Because he was like either condoning or turning a blind eye to what she was doing because he's getting 50 cents a pop. Right. So he's winding up with a couple bucks out of the day for doing absolutely nothing. Just more of the story that you just go, okay. Um, Something's you know, up. Yeah, this is weird. Yeah, so Something's she's, up. yeah, so she, to get back to Jack, she um, claims that now Jack is working on the ranch and that Mathis had asked him to milk a cow and Jack did not know how to milk a cow. So Mathis was screaming and yelling at him about, you're worthless, what do I pay you for? You don't even know how to milk a cow and started hitting him, punching him, beating him. And Jack, in a reflexive action, punched back to defend himself and knocked Mathis to the ground, thus killing him. So he panics, comes to Eva, tells her what he did. They both run out, remove his false teeth, and try to give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I'm like, okay, that just sounds a little weird, but okay. (laughs) It obviously didn't work. So the two of them put him in the car possibly how blood got on the car cover. Mm -hmm. They put him in the car and then she claims that Jack drove away alone to dispose of the body. And then he returned back to the house at 5 a.m. Now, people were very suspicious of this story because Jack was never found. Nobody claims to ever know him. Nobody remembers seeing a young, dark haired man in town. And you have to figure back then you people would know if there's a stranger in town. Well, the neighbors are already pretty nosy. They kind of already knew a lot about him. So that was one. Second, 
you're, um, they hire somebody to do ranch work, one of the things that you have to know is how to milk a cow. But that's also a suspicious for me just from growing up on a ranch is that a lot of times the housekeeper, the women of the home, did the milking of the cow. So that's a little suspicious to me, but that's me. Yeah. And that's no easy trick milking. Oh, yeah. It's not an easy job. So you've got to have strong fingers. I have milked a few cows. It is not easy. Oh, yeah. It's not an easy it's not an easy gig. And usually that's why the women would do it. They would milk and then take it right straight to the kitchen and they had to boil it. Right. So. Right. They started working it and then it, you know, was going into recipes and all the stuff that they were doing with it. Making either butter or making, you know, fresh milk or something. But yeah, so I just think think that's a little suspicious. But apparently nobody was buying her story because they charged her with murder, even though the evidence was mostly circumstantial. Well, let's uh, leave our listeners hanging there and uh, (laughs) (laughs) continue on with our part two for the next episode, but I think this is a great time to stop and we'll circle back with everybody and continue on for uh, a part two. Yes, absolutely. Everybody will leave you guys hanging, literally, and uh, <laughs> catch us next week. <laughs> but before before we let you go, we have a question of the week is, uh, what evidence broke the case of the BTK killer, Dennis Rader? Ooh, good one. All right. Good question. Well, we right? thank you guys for listening. We just, we really appreciate you. I just want you to know that. So thanks to everybody who's listening. Yes. And we're excited to wrap up the case for you guys in the next episode. Until then, take care. Follow us on all the social media. Check out our website and um, make sure to share our podcast with your friends and family. We are on all platforms. So absolutely stay safe. Remember to stay kind out there. And again, um, you can reach out and hit us up on our Facebook page or the website and give us your best guesses. Yes, absolutely. And until next week, we'll talk to you then and take care and be safe and stay kind. Yep. Bye everybody. Bye everyone. Time for Crime is a podcast about true crime, prison life, and the opinions from the people who've worked on the inside. Please follow us and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcatching software. Help us get our voice out there. You can get more information about the podcast and this case at www.timeforcrime.net. Look for us on Twitter at Time for Crime one or on Facebook at Time for Crime Vanny Cat. Feel free to leave us a comment on our voicemail at 623-292-5871. We might even put your call on the podcast. Like it, love it, and share it, but please credit the hosts Vanessa Nunez and Kathy Delaney for their commitment to the podcast and service to the community. We'd like to send a special thanks to Nickel Nynth for the music in this podcast. We'd also like to thank Dave Kaiser and Peter Nynth for their support of the podcast and website. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you, the listener. Without you, we couldn't bring you this podcast. Take care, everyone. <laughs>